Any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. Well, in between terrorist attacks, uh, unfortunately, uh, you probably have been following a bit of the general election campaign. And it's always interesting to see what happens, and I'm always thankful to be in the United Kingdom, not in the United States for something like this, because in the United States, it's like six years, and here in the UK, it's six weeks. Thank God. Thank God for that. Uh, And one of the highlights every time the election season comes out is the manifestos, the party manifestos. Uh, And it's extraordinary to read these manifestos because in them they can promise almost anything they want to promise. It doesn't have to be based in reality at all. They can promise just about anything. And they tend to try to outdo one another in making unfunded or underfunded promises to give more money to the NHS or more money to elderly care uh, or more money to this cause or more money to that cause, uh, not really saying how we're going to get the money. I uh, say, well, we'll take it from rich people. Okay, uh, we'll uh, take it, from wh- whatever, you know, we go. And the, the challenge with this is that in the end, it fosters what is known as a a taker-caretaker relationship between people and the government. So people become the taker, and the government becomes the caretaker. And it's the responsibility in these relationships for the caretaker to give to the taker. But the problem is, in any kind of caretaker-taker relationship... The more you take, the less satisfied you are. And so you can never, you can take and take and take and take, and there will never be a point at which you feel like you've taken enough. And the caretaker in this kind of context continues to feel the greater responsibility to give, to give, to give, to give, and to become more and more paternalistic, thus controlling the life of the taker. And you see this happening in government, but you also see this happening in relationships today, all across our society. It might be in the context of a business, you know, so the business has to take care of me, and I take the salary from the business, and the idea is that they owe me the salary, and I need to take more and more and more. Or it even finds its way into the church. And so people come and they say, well, I've come to, to take the, the sermon, and so I want to take some good teaching home. I want to take some good ministry home. Uh, and the church is supposed to be a caretaker. And we come up with all kinds of uh, metaphors. You know, the church is a hospital uh, and a number of other things that almost feed into this taker-caretaker type dynamic. And tragically, it even feeds into interpersonal relationships, one-to-one relationships. It will happen in a marriage. 
uh, to where one partner of the marriage wants to take and take and take. And they, they take some more. And then the other person begins to feel like the caretaker, uh, needing to give and to give. And their, their whole identity begins to form around this. It can happen in friendships. In one-to-one friendships where one, one person seems to be taking from the other one. The other one seems to be caretaking, just giving and it creates imbalance. And, and what we begin to think in our mindset is that, okay, I'll be the caretaker for a while so that I can become the taker at some point in time, but it never happens. Or if it does finally make a shift, then the taker never feels justified for all the caretaking that they've done. And ultimately, what ends up happening is that we undermine the vitality of our relationships. Whether it's our relationship with government, our relationship with our business, or our relationship with the church, our relationship with others, if we allow ourselves to slip into the taker-caretaker type dynamic, then we become consumers of relationships, not builders of relationships. And this is a real problem. And it's one of the reasons why so many people in our society feel lost and unable to build relationships because they're looking for a relationship that will give to them one from which they can take something that they feel like they need and then if they can take what they feel like they need they begin to think well then I can give but it never works that way because relationships healthy relationships tend to be very counterintuitive Healthy relationships tend to be very counterintuitive. I was doing some research on this, and, uh, and, I, and I just came across quite a number of things that even those outside the church are recognizing. Uh, for example, you don't have to feel a spark initially in order for something to have a good relationship. How many times, you know, do we have this idea, maybe it's a romantic relationship, and I'll walk into a room and I'll see someone across the room and say, Ah, some enchanted evening, you will see a stranger. And, and you, you have this, you know, this is what I'm going to have. It, it doesn't work that way. Many times, like Karen and I, we had our 32nd wedding anniversary on Thursday. Woo! Yeah. Yeah, I always put that in the context of when we were celebrating our 25th and I went back to my home church and they were celebrating two couples in the church. One had been married 72 years, the other had been married 74 years. Uh, so I'm not even sure I'm going to live that long, let alone be married that long. So, uh, but, but at 32 years, that's pretty good. 32 very, very, very happy years. But I can tell you, we didn't feel a spark initially. Won't go into that in great detail. Uh, or, you know, the idea that, oh, if, I, if I've got a really good friend, that, that we're going to be excited, there, there's, there's going to be energy, there's going to be vitality. And yet, actually, how you can know you have a really good friendship is when there's a sense of calm being in the person's presence. You know, I knew that I could marry Karen when we were driving, uh, going to look at a university. Obviously, we were young in those days. But we drove for about an hour without saying a word to each other. And it felt okay. Well, or what about this? Uh, you know, we kind of think, well, if I'm going to be in a great relationship, I'll be swept away. But actually, great relationships are usually very well grounded. Or, hey, if I get my soulmate, you know, or I get with the right group of people, they're going to bring out the best in me. 
But you know, actually, when you're with the right group of people, they tend to bring out the worst in you. Did you ever think about that? Because when you're actually comfortable and in a good relationship, that's when you can share that side of you that some people don't really want to see. And that's why in church, a lot of times people get offended because Christians in church, sometimes they they seem to be the worst with one another. But actually, we should expect that. Because that is the pathway to having a good relationship. You usually have a good relationship after your first argument, not before it. Uh, Or uh, uh, the idea that in in a good relationship, I can just be myself. Do you know that's not true? In a good relationship, you can't be yourself because you have to be thinking about the other person. You can't just look after yourself and your own needs. There's at least two or more that you have to think of. Uh, Or what about this, you know, fairness? You know, that's the hallmark of a great relationship. No, it's not. In a great relationship, you have to have a double standard, always. And the double standard has to favor the other person. A double standard that favors the other person. Now, these are things that are coming just from the, the secular press. The secular people are talking about relationships. As Christians, I believe that we can have better relationships, and I believe that God has called us to be people who can have better relationships, deeper relationships, stronger relationships, relationships that stand the test of time, then the test of distance, and the test of trouble. In fact, I think that with Paul in this passage, that as Christians, we can experience a deeper, more complete sense of joy in our relationships. That's what Paul said. Paul said, hey guys, complete my joy. Complete my joy. And this is even great on the day of Pentecost. I wondered about this. I was scratching my head, you know, the way this came up. But it's true that in the context of healthy relationships, the power of the Spirit is magnified. The Spirit seems to work in greater power when the people of God are having great relationships. So how do we do that? Well, Paul was talking a bit about that today. It's part of the flow here. He's going to go in next week to the example of Jesus, which is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. That's why I set it aside for itself. But this is all flowing in the context of what Paul began to talk about last week when he said, live as good citizens of God's kingdom. So relationships are an essential part of living as good citizens of God's kingdom. Relationships, having good relationships is an essential part of having life satisfaction. People who have healthy relationships tend to be physically healthier, tend to be happier, tend to be more satisfied, tend to be more grounded. They have all kinds of benefits that come from having healthy relationships. And as I said, as Christians, we can have even healthier relationships. And I think we can take three encouragements here from what Paul is telling us. The first is that in order to have a healthy relationship that will complete our joy in relationships, we have to believe what we have already in Christ Jesus. You have to believe what you have in Christ Jesus right now. Paul, he starts out there, he says, so if there is any, and goes on and lists some some characteristics. 
Now what Paul means by using this phrase, so if there is any, he is challenging us, he is provoking us to believe the list that he's about to share. So he's not saying, well, you know, I'm not sure if you people have this or not. I'm not sure if this is true of your life or not. So if it is, you can have a great relationship. If it isn't, well, sorry, you're toast. I mean, that's not the idea here. Paul is saying here, if you're a Christian, then you have these things and you need to believe that you have these things. He's goading us into really believing and affirming the truth of the list that he's about to give us as true right now for anybody who is in Christ. And that's the operative phrase here in this first verse, in Christ. All of these things are things that we have right now by virtue of the fact that we are in Christ. That we have surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior who died on the cross and rose from the dead. We have these things right now in Christ. So what are the things he lists? He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Now this word encouragement is the same word that you get uh, describing the Holy Spirit in John's Gospel, the paraclesis, the one who comes alongside. So in Jesus, Jesus comes alongside of us. You are not walking the life alone. Jesus is with you. Jesus is alongside you. The Holy Spirit is alongside of you. And they are helping you to live your life. And you have that right now in Jesus. You don't have to work for it. It's true for you right now. Then he goes on and he says, if you have any comfort from love. And I think Paul here is talking about comfort from the Father's love. We have God's love for us. God speaks to us in a kind way. He gives us consolation. We have a God who, according to the prophet Zephaniah, sings over us. Did you ever think about that? God is singing over you and over your life. That's how much he loves you. His love will never leave you. His love is there. And because of his love, he speaks kindly to you. If you hear a harsh voice in your mind condemning you, do you know that is never God? It's never God. For there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus according to Paul in Romans chapter 8. It's never God. The harshness that we think we hear is never God. That's why if somebody gives a prophetic word and it's harsh, it's not God. I know it's not God. Now, God can say some pretty hard things, but God says hard things in ways that we will listen and we will respond to. As Paul says in Romans 3, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So we have this comfort from the Father's love. And then he says, any participation in the Spirit. This word is koinonia, fellowship. In other words, when we're in Christ, the Holy Spirit is inside of us, making us more like Jesus. The Holy Spirit is upon us, empowering us to live like Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is among us, enabling us to be the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. And that is true of us right now. We don't have to work for the Spirit. We don't have to earn the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is here with us, working in us. We are participating in the Holy Spirit right now. If we have any affection, this is talking about God's affection toward us. God has tender feelings toward us. 
God has tender feelings toward you. And any, any uh, excuse me, any, any comfort and any sympathy. Do you know Christ has mercy on us? As the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus was like us in every single way except without sin. Jesus knows what it's like to live our lives. Jesus knows what it's like to be a human being. And because of that, he is sympathetic toward us. He has mercy on us. He's not waiting for us to fall in order to push us down further in the mud. He's waiting for us. He's watching as we stumble to grab us and keep us from falling. These things are true for us right now. And the problem is, if you do not believe all of these things as being true for you, you will always struggle with relationships. You will always struggle with relationships if you do not believe these things are true for you. You know, for example, if you don't believe that Christ is being merciful toward you, you will not be merciful toward other people. And if you're not merciful toward other people, guess what? You're going to have a hard time having a relationship with them. If you don't understand that the Father is singing joyfully over you and being generous and gracious toward you, you'll have a hard time being generous and gracious toward other people. So we have to believe these things. We have to choose to believe them every single day. It's not dependent on how we feel. It's dependent on the Word of God and who we are in Christ. And these things are true for us. And they're essential for having and building healthy relationships. And then Paul goes on and says another thing there, beginning in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And I think Paul is telling us here in this context to engage fully in the community of faith. He's talking about Christians here. Now, the community of faith, the church, this is where we practice relationships. That's why we fail so much, by the way. That's why we make so many mistakes. That's why we hurt each other. We're practicing. And if you're practicing, you will fall from time to time. It's one of the reasons why we put uh, what we call stabilizers or training wheels, what we call them in the States, uh, on bicycles for children. Because we know that until you learn how to ride a bike, you're going to fall a lot more than you're going to go straight. And that's true in our relationships. We should expect that. And if we want to have healthy relationships and we want to grow in those relationships, then we must engage fully in the community of faith. And Paul tells us there are three ways that we can do this. First of all, the first thing he says, um, being of the same mind. Really, this means to set our mind on the same thing, to pay attention to the same thing. One of the powerful things about worship is that it all focuses us on the same person, God. It focuses us on his word. We're paying attention in the same direction. And that's the challenge. We will become what we pay attention to. So if you pay attention to all the faults of the people around you, you'll become a mean-spirited, bitter person. But if you pay attention to the good in the people around you, you'll become a more joyful person. doesn't minimize the faults, but it certainly helps. If we pay attention together to activities such as prayer and reading the scriptures, they, they give us clarity in our minds and they build our healthy relationships. And then he goes on and he says, having the same love. 
We need to have God's love that we share with one another. We need to understand that, first of all, every single person around us has the love of God. There's no person here that's not loved by God. There's no person here toward whom God is not being gracious right now. And this love that we share together, we can then begin to focus on the other people around us. Again, the church is the place where we practice loving one another. It's not the place where we do it perfectly the first time. We have to practice love. And love is this self-giving commitment to others for their benefit, not for yours. We practice this. And this is what it means to have the same love. To get God's love, know you're loved by God, and share that love graciously with the other people around you. And then this third thing that Paul says here is a bit difficult to translate, being in full accord and of one mind. But I put it like this, engage your mind, your will, and your emotions with one another in harmony. Engage your whole self, your mind, your will, and your emotions, the way you think, the way you choose, the way you feel. Engage that positively with others, seeking to be in harmony. Now, the thing about harmony, it's not the same note. Harmony comes only when you have a multiplicity of notes flowing together in the same key. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about us being the same person. He's not talking about some kind of groupthink in which we lose our identity, we lose the uniqueness of how God has made us. He's talking about how we work harmoniously together, engaging fully our mind, our will, and our emotions in a positive way toward one another. So if we want to have these healthy relationships and we want to build healthy relationships, we have to believe what we have in Christ and we need to engage fully in the community of faith as the training ground. But then thirdly, we need to take personal responsibility for how we connect with others. We take personal responsibility for how we connect with others. And that's what Paul is essentially saying here, uh, beginning with verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, as we uh, connect with others, as we take responsibility to connect with others, first of all, we cannot do anything out of selfish ambition or a sense uh, uh, of of, uh, conceit. And what he means here, selfish ambition is an unhealthy spirit of competition. It's, it's a, an idea of where affection is in scarcity, so I have to compete with other people for a limited amount of affection. And that's not true. It's the idea uh, of where I'm going to be at odds with other people. We're going to have a rivalry here. We're going to have a contest here for people, for attention, for you can name whatever you want. That's selfish ambition. Conceit is, it literally means empty glory. In other words, you're trying to, to get glory for yourself, you're trying to get attention for yourself, but in the end, it's only empty. You can do nothing from selfish ambition, rivalry, conceit, empty glory, uh, because those things destroy relationships. They don't enhance relationships. The problem is, you have to take responsibility for it. I remember a guy a number of years ago, when he and I got together, there always seemed to be this spirit of competition that he had. 
You know, it's just like, well, yeah, look at my new car. <laughs> oh, that's got a V8 engine in it. <laughs> 454, four barrel, uh, double carbon. I don't know what these uh, cars have changed over the years so much. Uh, or, yeah, yeah, I just got a raise. Yeah, I'm now making uh, uh, 50,000 pounds a year. Yeah, well, it's just like, and, and everything it seemed like a competition with him. And it was so easy to get sucked into this. And finally, I just said, you know, that's enough of this. And I just stopped playing the game. That's where you take responsibility for not doing it. You can't keep other people from doing it. They will. But you don't have to do it yourself. And then he goes on and he says that with humility, we need to consider others as better or more significant than ourselves. Now, the idea of humility here. It's, it's not saying, oh, I'm terrible, I'm no good for nothing, you know, because that's not true. Humility is a proper estimation of yourself in light of your Creator, in light of your God. So with humility, you know who you are, but you also know who God is. You have your confidence in God, not in your abilities. In humility, you don't allow your mind to go high, you keep your mind low, focused on God, focused on reality. But when he says, consider others as better or more significant than yourselves, this idea of consider here is to intentionally focus on other people, believing not that they are more important, not that they are more valuable, but that they are surpassing you, that they are excellent, not in a sense of, of saying that, that, that they are more important to the body of Christ or anything like that, but in the sense of giving grace and honoring who they are and honoring the person that God has made them to be. And then finally, he says, in addition to your own interests, look out for the interests of others. Pay attention to the interests of others. This is not a totally unself-interested thing. It is an engagement in which we're looking out to other people. We're looking out for the things that will help them, the things that will encourage them, the things that will build them up. And these are things that we can take responsibility for. And so we find if we will believe who we are in Christ, engage in the community of faith, and take responsibility for how we relate, how we connect to other people, we can build healthy relationships that will maximize our joy in the Lord and that will actually increase our ministry effectiveness and the light that we shine to the world around us, bringing glory and honor to Jesus. But to do this, we have to reframe, refocus this taker-caretaker type dynamic so that it becomes a giver-giver dynamic where we give grace, we give love, we give mercy, we give kindness, not as we've received it from others, but as we have received it from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the foundation for our healthy relationships and it is the foundation for our testimony that Jesus Christ really is Lord. And we express this again and again and again as we gather together around the Lord's table. This table is not City Temple's table. It's the table of our Lord. And it is a reminder to us of how Jesus freely and fully gave himself to us. 
as his body was broken on the cross and his blood was shed on the cross. It is an invitation for us to engage with Jesus and engage with one another in the way that Jesus has engaged with us by grace, mercy, and a self-giving love that is hard for us to comprehend. So as we come to the table today, let's come not as people who just want to take and take, but let us come as people who want to receive from Jesus in order to give as Jesus gave. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the love that you've shown us in your son, Jesus Christ. And thank you that you are a relational God who invites us into relationships. Oh, we love you and we praise you and we thank you. Now I pray, Father God, that you'd bless this bread and this cup that they might be for us the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, broken and shed on the cross. Use them to reignite our faith and establish us more deeply in your love, grace, and mercy so that we might share that love, grace, and mercy with more and more people beginning in this church and going beyond into London and the entire world so that Jesus is glorified in us. Jesus is lifted up in us. That we embody Jesus to the world around us, bringing glory, honor, and praise to him. We thank you, we praise you, we worship you, and we adore you. In Jesus' name, amen.